chapter 12. John 12, our focus this morning will be verses 27 to 36, but I do want to pick up reading in John 12 at verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out and die. If I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this day and for the opportunity to gather in the house of the Lord God Most High. We pray that you would guide us now by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that we would see the glory of Jesus Christ as manifested in, in the Holy Scriptures. We know, God, that you sent your Son, your only Son, the only begotten Son, to live, to die, and to be raised again that third day for us men and for our salvation. We praise you for so great a gospel. We pray that this gospel would be proclaimed throughout the earth and that that word would run swiftly and be glorified. And blessed here to the hearing of our souls, may you encourage us and may you build us up and may you strengthen us. And God, may you be pleased to call sinners out of darkness into marvelous light, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Do forgive us now for all sin and transgression. Wash us in the precious blood of the Lamb. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been some time since we've been in John's gospel. Remember that as John takes pen to paper under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wants us to understand who Jesus is. And he begins in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, in what we call the prologue to John's gospel. And that first statement, that first verse, sets the stage for all that follows. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then moving down in the prologue in verse 14, he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
So he sets forth who Christ is relative to the persons of the Trinity. God is one true and living God, but he exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that. The Christian church confesses that, and we embrace it delightedly so. Then John turns his attention to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in about John 1, 29. John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so as we move through John's gospel, we see this emphasis. Jesus is one person, but he is two natures, divine and human. He is, in fact, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, through whom all things were created. And that one took on our humanity with all the essential properties, all the common infirmities thereof, and yet without sin. And he did that for the very specific purpose so that he could live in obedience to the Father's law because we had not. He did it so that he could go to the cross in our stead and receive this uh, uh, divine justice for not his sin, but for our sin. He satisfied God's wrath and fury on that cross for us. And then he was raised again the third day. Paul summarizes the gospel very beautifully in Romans 4.25. He tells us that Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses and he was raised for our justification. That gets at what John is doing here through his gospel record. Now, as we get to chapter 12, we'll notice in the first place the triumphal entry. We've already considered that. And then we are, I'm sorry, the, the anointing at Bethany in chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. And then the triumphal entry. And so Jesus is now in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is uh, engaged in the last act of his public ministry. Chapters 13 to 17, we'll find Jesus in the upper room, discourse with his disciples, and then the passion begins specifically in chapter 18. So last time we were in John's gospel, we saw that the hour had arrived. Notice in verses 20 to 26, Jesus speaks concerning the hour. Verse 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now the hour is the hour of the cross. Now Christ came again to live, to die, and to be raised again. Very often you see the apostolic proclamation of the gospel focuses in on the cross. It was, in fact, the pinnacle, the sort of crowning event in terms of life's, uh, Christ's redemptive ministry on behalf of his people. So the hour had arrived, and he announces that. Notice in verse 24, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. He uses an analogy. He uses a, 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 an agrarian theme. He understands well and, and conveys the significance of his death. Unless Jesus dies, there's not going to be much grain. Unless Jesus dies, there's not going to be many sinners saved. Unless Jesus dies, there's not going to be any sinners saved. And that's the emphasis there. And so now as we come specifically to verses 27 to 36, he explains that hour in more detail. He explains the significance of it in more detail. So I want to look this morning at the prayer to his father in verses 27 to 29. Secondly, the explanation to the people in verses 30 to 33. And then finally, the question concerning the Messiah in verses 34 to 36. Now, just a bit of a foreshadowing. The people aren't genuinely seeking out information. Well, well, who is this son of man that we can believe in him? They are repudiating him. They are rejecting him. They are holding him in disdain because he, the one who claims to be the son of God, is telling them that the Messiah of God must actually die. 
As far as these unbelieving Jews were concerned, this was a scandal. Paul speaks to that in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 23. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To the Jews, it is a stumbling block or a scandal, and to the Greeks, it is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, Christ is the wisdom and the power of God. And so that's why Jesus does what he does in terms of his response to their question. He's not going to supply them with more information. He's going to press them with the information they already have. In other words, the light is with you for just a little bit longer. You better make good on it. You better come to Jesus. You better believe in him that you may be sons of light. So there is a note of urgency in the way that Christ responds to these unbelieving Jews. But let's look first at the prayer to his father in verses 27 to 29. We know it's prayer because he speaks specifically to his father in verse 27 and, 8, and 28. And then the father responds. But notice with reference to this prayer, he expresses the trouble of his soul. Jesus, again, is the word made flesh who dwelt among us. What is true of flesh? What is true of flesh or true of humanity is soul trouble at the prospect of something very difficult. Perhaps you have a, a, a day in court tomorrow. You're going to be a little bit anxious as you approach the courtroom. Perhaps you have some significant event this Wednesday and, and it's causing a bit of butterflies in the stomach. Well, Jesus understands what the hour is. Jesus understands the significance of the hour, and Jesus realizes that he's going to take our place and bear the wrath and fury of his Father on behalf of us. So, of course, we can understand why his soul is engaged in a bit of trouble. And he expresses that very vividly in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. We have other passages that indicate the significance of this. Now, this is the Passion Week. He's not come to Gethsemane yet, but later when he gets into the Garden of Gethsemane, we once again hear and see that he has this soul trouble. So again, it's not just one time in the Garden of Gethsemane, right on the heels of his arrest and his uh, uh, being brought before the Sanhedrin, but in the Passion Week itself. And he expresses this, now my soul is troubled. Notice back in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 26, specifically in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is when he takes Peter and James and John into the Garden, and he expresses to them this soul trouble. Notice in verse 38 of Matthew 26, Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Again, brethren, if you understand the true humanity of Jesus Christ, this shouldn't give you any pause, any cause for concern. We would expect this from true humanity. We would expect this trouble of soul from a man who knew that he was going to die a horrific death, who knew that he was going to be crucified, handed over by lawless hands to godless men that would give the kill order so that he would be executed on this Roman cross. But it's ultimately not the, the actions of men. It is the wrath and fury of God. His soul trouble comes as a result because of his work as a mediator, taking in himself the punishment that is due for our sins. But it's not just here. Turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5, the apostle, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, and in Hebrews chapter 5, he underscores the significance of this part or aspect of, of the ministry of our Lord Jesus. Hebrews chapter 5. specifically at verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. 
Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who, all who obey him. So the idea here is not that, you know, this is a, an expression of, of, of just kind of a conveyance that he's actually human. He's true man. He's an actual man. He takes on our humanity. Again, with all the essential properties that make us men and all, all the common infirmities that make us men. He, he suffered. He, he, he died. He bled. He, he hungered. He thirsted. He was insulted by the, the, the peoples. He was deserted by his disciples. True humanity went in our stead to that particular cross. So he expresses this soul trouble. He expressed it at the gravesite of Lazarus when his, when his friend had died. He'll express it again in chapter 13 and verse 21. And again, when we ask the question, what's the problem? Why is he troubled? What's the difficulty in his heart? Well, it's the reality that the hour had come. The hour of his death. The hour of crucifixion. The hour that he'd be del de delivered up so that he could die in our place. And then notice back in our text in John 12, 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Again, a legitimate question in light of the fact that he's going to the cross. We don't look at him in Gethsemane there when he's exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death, and, and question why he'd say, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Brethren, the cup that he's speaking of there isn't just some simple earthly physical cup with bad things to drink. You go back into the Old Testament revelation and the cup is God's wrath. God poured out the cup of his wrath on Babylon. God poured out the cup of his wrath on Egypt. God poured out the cup of his wrath on Israel in the Assyrian captivity, in the Babylonian captivity, and he would subsequent to this event in the time of the Roman Empire when they crushed the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. This cup of God's wrath he understood all too well, and it's that that evoked the soul trouble. It wasn't that he liked the fact that men were betraying him. It wasn't like he liked the fact that he was going to die at the hands of a, of a godless government. But he, when it came time to cry out, it was the wrath of the Father. And so that hour is quickly approaching him. And notice what he says in terms of his prayer. My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He does this in the garden. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But notice the response. The response is not, yep, I don't want to go through this. Yep, I'm going to call in sick tomorrow. Yep, I'm going to call in sick on Wednesday. This is not something that I'm prepared for, and this is not something that I'm, I, I am ready to deal with. No, he's got a commitment to his Father's will. He's got a commitment to the divine will. He's got a commitment to his mission and to his cause. And you see that here at the end of verse 27. He says, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. He does the same thing in Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So when it comes to this soul trouble of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is true. It is real. It is a, a facet of true humanity to shrink back under the pressure of great suffering and great trial and great hardship. We see the response of this soul trouble or the response of our Lord Jesus to this soul trouble is not to shrink back. It's not to abandon the cause, but rather it is to double down. Rather it is to set his face like a flint. Rather it is to be steadfast for us men and for our salvation. Brethren, we ought to be very thankful for the resolve of our blessed Savior. We ought to be very thankful for his commitment to our cause. 
We ought to be very thankful that in the scriptures we find a Savior who's not just partially invested in the good of his people, but in whole-souled commitment, we see the mission of Jesus Christ as paramount in his mind. We see that as his marching orders. We see that as what he intends to do. So in this brief section, we'll look at the next statement, Father, glorify your name, but let's appreciate for a moment the true humanity of our Lord. He is truly man. He didn't just appear to be a man. Some in the early church taught that, or those plaguing the early church taught that. He just appeared to be a man. He was sort of like a, a phantom. He was sort of like an apparatus. No, he bled like a man. He suffered like a man. He had soul trouble like a man, and he ultimately died like a man. Remember, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Cyril of Alexandria made this observation. He had to, and then he says it again, had to show himself through these to be a man born of a woman, not in appearance and fantasy, but naturally and truly experiencing the full human condition except for sin. See what our Savior did for us? He says elsewhere, the word of God then united to himself the entire nature of a human being in order to save the whole person. For what is not assumed is not healed. If he doesn't assume our humanity, he certainly doesn't redeem it. He certainly doesn't cure it. He certainly doesn't bring us remedy. It was absolutely imperative that the Son of God take on our flesh to live for us, to die for us, and to be raised again for us. And essentially, that's the gospel. The gospel is not my warm response to a message. The gospel isn't the change that has come over me because I got religion. Those are effects of the gospel, hopefully positive ones, but the gospel is the message of Christ and him living, dying, and being raised again the third day. That's the gospel. Again, not our religious experience, not our attempt to get to God, not our religiosity, not our ritual, not our sacrifice, not our pattern of life, not our warm feelings, not any of that. The gospel is a revealed message concerning the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we say gospel preaching is absolutely crucial in this present evil age. It's not our experience that's gonna win men over. It's not our virtue that's going to win men over. It's not our pattern of life that's going to win men over. It is the power of God's gospel, the reality that Christ lived in obedience to the Father's law, that he died as a sacrifice and a substitute, that he was raised again the third day, and that all who believe on him will have everlasting life. In fact, look at his language to these Jews at the end of this discourse. Notice in verse 36, while you have the light, Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When you hear that message of Christ's life and death and resurrection, what's the means by which we appropriate it? In other words, how does it benefit me? We're a very practically oriented people. What, what comes of this for me? What is there in this for me? Well, it's not an example because you will never live like the holy, harmless, and undefiled one did. You will never be able to follow Jesus' footsteps perfectly, exactly, entirely, and perpetually. The message of the gospel, the way of reception, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. That's it? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's everything. When you abandon any thought that you, in yourself, can earn your way to heaven, 
Sometimes you can't even get your way out of bed. You think you're going to earn your, your reception by a holy God? The God whose eye is too pure to approve of any evil? And when we consider ourselves before that holy God, all we like sheep have gone astray. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. There is no fear of God before our eyes. If there is remedy, if there is redemption, it must come from God. It's not us offering up. It's not us coming to the bartering table and saying, well, I've got this virtue. I've got this, this good thing. And, and if you just meet me halfway, then, then, then you can accept me and take me to heaven. No, it's about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. The way that we receive that is by God's grace through faith. Faith is the empty hand that receives the blessing secured by Jesus Christ. The hymn writer said it this way, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. He says elsewhere, foul I to the fountain fly. Look at that language or listen to that language, foul I to the fountain fly. Not, I gotta go fix myself. I gotta stop these particular sins. I gotta get my act together. I gotta buy a suit, gotta go to the right church, gotta get the right Bible, gotta do the right things. Those might be consequences of you being saved by God's grace, but they're not the condition. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me savior or I die. Is that just the literary mind of the hymn writer? Is he just taking you know, literary sort of license to express the glory of the gospel? Read the prophet Jeremiah sometime, chapters two and three. Chapter two is the bad news. You see, we can't have the good news of remedy in Christ without the first, first having the bad news of our wretchedness and our rebellion. Paul does this in Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20. He sets forth the reality that all men everywhere, whether Gentile or Jew, are liable to God's just judgment on the day of judgment. It is on that point, or at that point, that he then says, but now the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, Jeremiah 2 and 3 is sort of like that as well. Jeremiah 2 tells us how wicked the people of Judah had become. In fact, God says, has a nation changed its gods? Have the Ammonites given up Molech? Have the Egyptians given up, you know, their calf idols? Have the, 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 the various Hittites or the various Titeites around, around Israel, have they sacrificed or given up their gods? No, but my people have exchanged me for that which does not satisfy. They were wicked. They were horrible. Chapter 2 of Jeremiah tells us how evil they were. But you know what happens in Jeremiah 3? Five times God says through the prophet, yet return to me, says the Lord. Yet return to me, says the Lord. I'm going to do this five times. Yet return to me, says the Lord. Yet return to me, says the Lord. Yet return to me, says the Lord. And in one of them, he says, return to me, ye backsliding sinners, and I will heal your backsliding. See, there's this idea that gets connected with Christianity sometimes. I got, I got to clean up my act. I got to get prepared. I got to get ready. I got to fix my issues. Christianity is the divine response to the fact that you can't fix your issues. You can't just comply your way out of the mess that you're in. You can't just decide right now, from here on out, I'm only ever going to obey. Let's just suppose for a moment you could do that. What happens to all the sin in your past? See, we need the doing and the dying and the rising of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that when by grace we believe in him, we're justified freely by his grace. And what does justification mean? It means that I'm forgiven of my sins, and it means I receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's imputed to us and received by faith alone. 
So the Lord Christ had to assume our humanity in order to save us from our sins. Matthew Henry comments on the act of prayer. He says, though as God he was prayed to, as man, he prayed. That's what we call in theology the hypostatic union. There's not going to be a quiz on this later, but there is a technical term for what happens in the one person of Christ that has two natures. It's the hypostatic union. It's the union of the divine and the human natures in the one person, fitting him as the God-man to carry out the task that was handed to him by the Father to save us from our sins. The way he does that is by living and dying and being raised again. When he lives that life of perfect righteousness, it's not in the first place as an example. That's the problem of liberal theology in the 20th century or early part of the 20th century. We just need to follow Jesus' example. We're too wicked to follow Jesus' example. Sorry, uh, you, you may not have bargained for that message this morning. Boy, I came to feel good about myself and the guy's telling me I'm wicked. Yeah, because the Bible tells you you're wicked. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9. The, the apostle, I've already revealed or re reviewed Romans 3, none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. There's no fear of God before the eyes of man. It's not an example that we need. It is redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. It's not a little help from on high to get you there. It is God reaching down to sin or the pits of sin and misery and picking you up. The apostle Peter uses the language of calling them out of darkness into marvelous light. And so Jesus went through this for us. So back to the text, notice. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. I don't want to pass over this next phrase. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. But for this purpose, the soul trouble that is predicated on the suffering and the death, it is for this hour that he came. You've ever asked the question, well, why did Jesus come into this world? Well, he tells you. He tells you that he came for this hour. He tells you that he came to go through this so that he could save us from our sins. But for this purpose, I have come. This seems to indicate that there's something behind the scene in terms of the words that he uses here. I suggest there is three things. First, the mission of Christ is prophesied in the Old Testament. Notice again what he says in verse 27. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. In the 1960s, somebody wrote a musical, or maybe the guy wrote the musical before the 1960s, but they put it into, into a musical form, and it was called Jesus Christ Superstar. And I'll go to my grave as having never seen that, and I hope to keep it that way. But from what I understand, you had a Jesus, kind of a hippie-type Jesus. Remember, this was the 60s. Everybody's, you know, breaking out into song and, you know, flowers and the whole spiel, probably drinking chamomile tea and whatever it is that they would have done at that particular time. But from what I understand, apparently Jesus really didn't understand his mission. He's kind of confused and perplexed. He just sort of found himself as this man, and, you know, he'd come from Nazareth, uh, Nazareth, and he's living in Israel. He's a first century Jew. He's not kind of really sure what... That could not be further from the truth. Jesus always knew his purpose. Jesus always knew his mission. You know, one of the ways that Jesus always knew his purpose and his mission was because according to his humanity, he studied scripture. And when he studied scripture, guess who he saw there? He saw himself. 
So in the promise of Genesis chapter 3 at verse 15, the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent, was prophesied, Genesis 3.15, the first gospel announcement, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Well, who's that seed of the woman? Well, it's Jesus. Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham is told to take Isaac up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice. Sacrifice your only begotten son, the one whom you love. So Abraham dutifully responds to that. Abraham's about to drop the knife into his son Isaac. The angel of the Lord stops him in the act. Well, Abraham had given his son Isaac a good theology lesson. He had said, the Lord will provide for himself a sacrifice. Well, after the angel of the Lord stops him, they look and there's a ram caught in the thicket. Guess what the ram does? It takes the place of Isaac, his son. You've got the, 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 the Psalms, the book of Psalms is all about Christ. Yes, find your misery, find your woes, find your troubles. The church has always gone to the Psalter and sang back those praises to God in the midst of distress, in the midst of triumph, in the midst of all of those things. But you know what the focus of the Psalter is? It's on Jesus. Psalm 22, the first half of the Psalm is the Psalm of the, the cross. What does Jesus quote when he's on the cross? He doesn't quote the modern praise and worship choruses. He quotes the Psalms of David. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Psalms are about him. The prophet Isaiah, you could as effectively call him the apostle Isaiah when you get to the uh, uh, 53. It's all about substitutionary atonement. It's all about the, the, the lamb going for us and, and for our salvation. So when Jesus makes this statement in verse 27, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. This was prophesied concerning him. And that's just a sample. That's just a few passages. What does the New Testament do? The New Testament affords for us the facts of his life, death, and resurrection in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do a lot of theology themselves. They relate the significance of the various things that he accomplished. The New Testament apostles in the epistles give us even more interpretation of that data. But consider Matthew 1.21, the announcement of the coming of Jesus. What does the angel say to Joseph? It is he who will save his people from their sins. I suggest that's a good thought to remember when you work your way through Matthew's gospel. If you've never read the gospels, if you've never read Matthew, it's good to keep that in mind, especially when you get to chapters, oh, from 26 to 27, when he's being rejected, when he's being, you know, fastened upon a cross, when he's being spat upon, when he's being abused. Well, you ask the question, why is he going through this? He, he only ever did what was right because he came to save his people from their sins. Jesus announces his own mission to his disciples in Matthew 20, verse 28. The disciples are jockeying for position. Lord, Lord, promise that when you come in your kingdom, we get to sit on your right and your left. Uh, typical of us, right? <laughs> he had just announced that he's got to go to Jerusalem. He's got to be tried. He's got, or he's got to be arrested. He's got to be tried and he's got to be crucified. They, they just heard that. So what's uppermost in their minds? Can we sit on your right hand and on your left hand? So he rebukes them. He chides them. You, you don't know what you're talking about. You, you don't know the baptism I have to be baptized with. And there he doesn't mean water baptism. He means overwhelmed with the wrath and fury of God. He says, you don't understand the cup that I have to drink. Again, not a physical cup, but the cup of God's wrath. And then he makes this statement to his disciples. He says, the son of man came uh, not to serve, or, or rather be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
He never shrunk back from that focus. He never shrunk back from that mission. And we see him here, according to his humanity, resolute to do the will of the Father. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Consider again, John 1, 29. The Lamb of God who does what? He takes away the sin of the world. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John 3, 14, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man also be lifted up. We're going to see that language explained for us in verse 33 in this particular passage. He spoke signifying his death. He would be raised up. He would be crucified on that cross of shame. He would do that again for us men and for our salvation. You've got the commentary of the Apostle Paul, 2 Galatians 4, 4 rather. He says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we've got the Old Testament prophecy. We've got the New Testament fulfillment, but as well, something we've seen all throughout John's gospel is the mission as obedience to the Father. Christ, as our mediator, always did what pleased the Father. Remember, he can't just eke out a little bit of obedience and, and clear us. It has to be perfect. The demand of God's law, again, I want to speak very simply here. If you have ever thought, you know, I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm probably going to end up in heaven. I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. I've not engaged in those benchmark sins. I understand the God of the Bible is supposed to be love and kindness and all that sort of thing. So I hope to just sort of weasel my way in because I haven't done these really bad things. There's a famous sort of teaching tool in our tradition. It's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And ask the question, what does every sin deserve? It's a good question. What does every sin deserve? Well, you may not like the answer, but here goes. Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. In other words, God demands perfection. In your schooling, you know, depending on your age, you know, it used to be you actually had to do the work and get an A or an F. Now you just, as long as you show up and you can breathe, you're going to pass because you're a delicate snowflake and we don't want to make you feel bad. God does not grade that way. God does not look at you and say, well, you weren't as bad as your neighbors. You weren't as bad as your father. You weren't as bad as your mother. He doesn't grade that way. Our obedience to the law must be exact. It must be entire. It must be perpetual. In other words, God demands perfection. If you're following even a little bit, you'll have to conclude, that's bad news. Well, that's the context for the good news of Christ, who always did what was pleasing to his father, who never had a lustful thought, who never looked lustfully upon a woman, who never hated people without cause in his heart, who never engaged in theft, who never engaged in insubordination, who never engaged in idolatry. He always did what was pleasing to the father. Why? Because we need that righteousness. We don't need ours. Ours is what got us into the trouble that we're in. We need a perfect righteousness. We need to be cleansed and clothed in the, uh, cleansed by his blood and clothed in his righteousness. And that, in essence, is the teaching of God's holy word. 
So Christ has the Old Testament backdrop and understands that for this purpose, I came to this hour. The rest of the New Testament comments that that's precisely what had happened. But in John's gospel, we see this commitment on the part of the Son of God to obey the Father. Look at John 4, specifically at verse 34. Jesus said to them, just back up a little bit, verse 31, in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. How true he is, right? We don't know what it's like to have our food being the will of the Father. It's perfectly accurate. I have food to eat of which you do not know. We think people that are really religious or, you know, really committed to the cause are, they're weird. It's odd. It's strange. It's an enigma, it's a puzzle to us that anybody would, you know, actually subject themselves not to just one sermon, but two on a Sunday. Well, that's going above and beyond. He says, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. When the soul trouble comes on him in John 12, when the soul trouble comes on him in, in the Gethsemane in Matthew 26, guess what he doesn't do? He doesn't shrink back. According to his humanity, he sees it. According to his humanity, he is troubled by it. The prospect of judgment, the prospect of wrath, the prospect of suffering, and all that goes with that evokes from him as a man the, the you know, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, praise God for neverthelesses in the Bible. Praise God for neverthelesses in the Bible. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He is committed to the cause. He is committed to the mission. And here he likens it to eating food itself. Notice in John 5 at verse 30. John 5 at verse 30. I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. This is typical of Christ's life of obedience. It is typical of his response to difficulty. It is typical of his life of obedience for us men and for our salvation. Look at 6, 38 to 40. 6, 38 to 40. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. You see how wonderful it is that he's resolved to do the Father's will? If he's not resolved to do the Father's will, then we don't benefit. The fact that he is resolved to do the Father's will means blessing and redemption and benefit for us. This is a perfectly wonderful Savior that God has furnished to very needy sinners. And then notice in 1018, 1018, verse 17, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So by the time we get to the soul trouble here in the Passion Week, connected to the cross, connected to the arrival of the hour, we understand why he's troubled, but we also understand that he is committed to undergo the trouble, to undergo the affliction, to undergo the shame of the cross so that you and I might have everlasting life. So back to chapter 12, notice verse 28 and 9. 
He then offers up this petition to the Father in verse 28. He says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. This is what animated the Son of God. Because again, this is not what animates the sons of men. Before you're a Christian, is the glory of God a concern to you? Well, I really shouldn't do this because God will not be honored in it. Be honest with yourself. Before, I mean, it's tough as a Christian to think that way. Tough with the Spirit, as blood-bought children of God. Every decision, every day for the believer, that's our question. Does this glorify God? If so, brother or sister, lead us in Bible study, because you've got it. But it's tough in terms of remaining corruption for the people of God to always be animated by a desire for the glory of God. For the unregenerate or the non-believer, do you ever think about it? When, when Paul says there is no fear of God before their eyes, I think that kind of encompasses this as well. There's no fear of God before your eyes. Certainly the glory of God is not uppermost in your thoughts relative to who he is. And yet with Jesus, our mediator, our prophet, priest, and king, this is his desire. This is his design. This is what makes him continue on. Again, according to his humanity, he says, Father, glorify your name. Go back to John 2. And for those of you who've glanced at your wrist, we're going to stop after this head. The prayer to his father is all we're going to consider this morning, and God willing, we'll take up the next section of this discourse in the weeks to follow. Just thought it was important to kind of remind us again about John's gospel, about the larger and broader context, to see not only the theology of John 1, 1 to 18, but the economy of redemption in John 1, 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it's good by way of reminder to see that Jesus was about the glory of God. Notice in John 2 at verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. That's not sin. I mentioned that Jesus did everything he did in his earthly ministry. Everything he does according to his humanity. Everything he does in that life of obedience is not sin. It's obedience. So, so you see that it, there is a righteous anger. God, God is angry with the wicked every day according to Psalm 711. I'm sure God, in terms of casting fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain, I speak as a man, but I doubt he had a great big smile on his face, is an expression of his righteousness. It is an expression of his justice. And with reference to our Lord Jesus, he goes into the temple, which is to be the dwelling of God with men, and he sees it prostituted. He sees it uh, uh, hoard out. He sees it, and it's an offense to him. So what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands to correct the abuse. He drives the money changers out. He turns the tables over. I don't think Jesus would be as welcomed in churches and society today as we might be led to believe. Jesus would stand up, and he does so in Matthew 23, to the religious leaders of his day, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You're like a bag of snakes. Jesus says to his contemporaries, the religious leaders in his day, look at you men. 
you, 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 you strain out the gnat with your fastidious, detailed attention to what you perceive as God's law. And all the while, you swallow the camel. And then he says to others to, to take the speck out of your own eye before you judge the plank that's in your brother's eye. Oh, Jesus, he's so gentle, sweet, and mild. Most of us would probably run out of the church when he preached and told us how things really are. Oh, oh, oh we don't, we don't want to hear that. We, we don't like that. We like happy, peppy messages. We like a cheerleader leading us in, in the way that we should go about our lives. Now, notice the rationale behind this. Verse 16, he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. It's the glory of God that animates the Son of God. It's the glory of God that moves the Son of God. And that's the emphasis. Look at 718, chapter 7, specifically at verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. You see, that's what he wants. Notice in John 11, specifically verses 4 and then again at 40. Verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Notice the reciprocity there. The glory of the Father is the glory of the Son. The glory of the Son is the glory of the Father. See, the doctrine of the Trinity was not foisted upon the Scripture. The doctrine of the Trinity comes from the Scripture. God tells us that He is one true and living God. God tells us that He exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He tells us in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, distinctness from the Father. And the Word was God, the same essence as the Father. He is consubstantial, one in substance with the Father. So the Father's glory is the Son's glory. The Son's glory is the Father's glory. And that's the emphasis in this passage in John 12. He says, Father, glorify your name. Now notice the Father's response. Verse 28, then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. This is the third time that we know of in the gospel, well, the third time in the gospel records that the Father speaks approbation to the Son in his earthly ministry. It happens at the baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased at the baptism of Jesus. Remember, the dove comes and it falls upon Jesus. We've got the Father, Son, and Spirit. Old creation, the triune God is involved. New creation, the triune God is involved. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit there at the River Jordan. In fact, Turretin says, the ancients used to say, if you want to learn or see the doctrine of the Trinity, go to the River Jordan, because that's where you will see him. And then as well at the Mount of Transfiguration, what happens? Jesus is transfigured before them. He is blazing glory to his disciples there. And the Father again, this is my beloved Son, hear Him. The hear Him brings us back to Deuteronomy 18 and the promise of God to Moses, to Israel, that the Lord would bring up a, or raise up a prophet and you were to hear Him. And so at the baptism, at the transfiguration, and here at the sole trouble of our Lord Jesus Christ, a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. What does he mean? The Father is glorified in the Son. His public ministry up until this point, his doctrine, his miracles, his life of obedience, all of that glorifies the Father. 
it will be glorified again at the cross. The soul trouble of our Lord Jesus, connected to this hour, which is the cross of the Lord Jesus, is the grand demonstration of the glory of God Most High. That, my brothers and sisters, ought to be the primary focus of God's people. We considered that in the morning hour in the chapter of divine providence, chapter 5 in the confession. What is the purpose for all things? Well, I think, again, that Westminster Catechism starts there. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is a car, it's a dime, it's a lake house, it's all this. That's not man's chief end. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. See, when you look at the Bible, it's very typical for us to see us first. I'm not saying we're not in there. We're in there, just not in the places we'd like. All we like sheep have gone astray. No fear of God before our eyes. The Bible is God-centered. The Bible is theocentric. The Bible is about God Most High, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well summarized in Romans eleven thirty six. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. So the Lord Jesus Christ, with reference to his resolve, his commitment to his mission, has one driving, driving motivation, and that is the glory of his Father. The Father expresses the glory that he has in and through the Son. The sole trouble of our blessed Savior is terminated here on the reality that Father and Son will be glorified through the mission of the Son. Well, again, we'll visit the rest of this discourse probably in two weeks' time as we have the baptism next time, but I just want to leave us with this thought. Two thoughts, actually. First, we need to appreciate the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's unique. He's not like anyone else. You're not like Jesus. As much as you want to be, as much as you try to be, this is why exemplary preaching always falls short. Just try harder and be like Jesus. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is you tried as hard as you can, or probably not at all, and you'll never be like Jesus, but God sent Jesus to live for you, to die for you, and to rise again, to rescue you from the sin and the depravity that you know. So we need to understand the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, those two natures in the one person. It is for us men and for our salvation. John 1.1 and John 1.14 are absolutely crucial for the salvation of sinners. If it isn't the word who became flesh for us, there's no salvation. If it isn't a perfect righteousness, if it isn't a bloodshed that is substitutionary in nature, if it isn't the satisfaction of divine justice at the cross, there's no forgiveness. So we ought to be, as God's people, very happy and very appreciative that the Lord undertook at our particular level. That he sent his son to do what the son does for the glory of the Father, the Son and the Spirit, so that we might have everlasting life. So Christian, I hope you go home today rejoicing in the fact that your blessed Savior is divine, but rejoicing as well that your blessed Savior is human, that he indeed took on our humanity that he indeed lived for us, rose, uh, died and rose for us. And for unbelievers, listen to Jesus' words. I may not get a kick at the can again. You may not show up next time. Look at what he says in verse 36. And these are people, again, they're not asking questions. You know, when they say, when you read, look at verse 34. The people answer him. This isn't a search for information. They're not really wanting a Bible study at this point. Their minds are made up. 
This is bringing the, the, the public ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of John to an end. This is it. John 12, that's it. Public ministry is over. John 13, 1, the book of the Passion. So notice what they said. The people answered, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. That's not a bad reading of the law. Law here means the Old Testament. Does the law say that the Lord Jesus will live, or that the Messiah will live forever? Sure it does. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. We sang that at the outset of worship. Verse 4, you are a, 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 a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. What? For, forever. What does Isaiah the prophet announce concerning the identification of the king, the Messiah, in Isaiah 9, 6? He's everlasting father. They didn't misread the law at that point, but they did misread it at the point of suffering. Does the Old Testament teach the suffering of the Messiah? Isaiah 53, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. Uh, Daniel 9, that, that, that one that's cut off in Daniel 9, that's not the Antichrist, that's Jesus Christ, cut off. We have Old Testament revelation that tells us that the Messiah would achieve victory through suffering and death. Genesis 3.15 again, you shall bruise his heel, but he shall crush your head. What's the bruising of the heel of the son or seed promised in Genesis 3? It's the cross. So they missed that point. So they're not, again, inviting him to a Bible study. They didn't get the coffee out now and say, okay, Jesus, we want to learn from you. No. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? They were looking for an earthly Messiah to bring back geopolitical prestige, to subjugate the Roman armies, and to make sure they had a good life in the temporal sphere. So, so how can you say that the Christ, that the Messiah, that the Son of Man must die? And then notice, who is this Son of Man? Again, it's with derision. They're not basking in the glory of the Son of Man present with them. They're challenging him. They're laying down the gauntlet. They are saying, we, we, don't, we don't want any truck with you. We don't want anything to do with you. You're, you're kind of out of your mind as far as we're concerned. And that's why Jesus doesn't sit there with a coffee and engage in Bible study. He presses them. And perhaps some of you need to be pressed. Perhaps you've heard the gospel before. Life, death, resurrection. The way of salvation isn't your good works. The way of salvation isn't you trying harder. The way of salvation is to look and live, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He presses them. A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus is the light and he is pressing them to believe on him so that they may become sons of light. Again, John 1, 1, or John 1 is in the background. He came to his own, his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. They weren't born by the will of man. They weren't born of the flesh. They were born by the power of a gracious God. So if you're an unbeliever, may I encourage you, hopefully lovingly and yet firmly, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Well, let us pray. 
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of our Lord's teaching. We thank you for the resolve in his life. The fact that he didn't shrink back. The fact that he drank the cup of God's wrath. The fact that he underwent that baptism, that overwhelming wrath and fury of God. We know he does this or he did this for our, for our salvation and we rejoice in that. Again, bless the preaching of the gospel. Open hearts to receive these things. And we pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, you can turn with me in your hymn books to 568. 568 will stand as we sing the doxology in praise to our great God. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Father, thank you that you are glorious and wondrous, that you sent the Son on this mission of salvation. We rejoice in the power of the Holy Spirit who has shown us these things and granted us the graces of faith and repentance. Go with us now. Help us to call this day a delight. And may you bless and encourage and strengthen each of your people. And we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, please be seated for a brief time of meditation.